All right, so good morning, policy heads. Welcome back to another episode of uh, Politics vs. Policy with Jared and Sheila. Uh, today, we're very happy to have two guests with us today. Um, very, very happy. So, the first guest is a returning expert, Mark Triffitt, who was in our second episode about the uh, decline in trust in democracy in the 21st century. So welcome back, Mark. Thank you for coming back. Pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so as you probably all know that Mark is a public policy and politics scholar at the University of Melbourne. Uh, he was a strategic communications and policy consultant for the governments and private sectors. Formerly, he was the director of strategic communications for the Business Council of Australia and was a corporate affairs executive general manager at West, Farm, West Farmers Limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, we have the great pleasure of having George Rennie in with us today here at our podcast. Uh, so, welcome, George. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, Good to be here. Yeah. <laughs> so, George is a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne School of Social and Political Sciences. Uh, he focuses on lobbying, corporate power, political communications, and campaigns, as well as integrity in the United States and Australia. So, thank you so much for coming in today. He also brought a bottle of wine in for a lunch he's going to afterwards, and we're all kind of having we're a good look lunch. at it uh, at 11 o'clock in the morning. So thank you so much. I'm going to uh, hand it over to Sheila because she's going to introduce the episode because she's very excited about this yes, week's topic. So just a little bit of a recap. Um, in our second episode, we were discussing about democracy in the 21st century where mm. Mark has touched upon the impact of big tech. Mm. Um, so we we're discussing about how capitalism has become digitized in the past 20 to 30 years. And it has turned to what scholars in the media call as surveillance capitalism. It is an umbrella term for all the public's private behaviour, decisions and movement that are monitored, recorded in digital prints and then monetized into mere products of data for capitalistic purposes. But it does not stop there. So storing data and processing them into very market-focused algorithms becomes peril because it distorts what choice means for the public which is crucial in democracy because we talk a lot about freedom of choice and it automates and takes control of social systems and citizens' preferences. So before we introduce the concept, I think it's best if we talk about like how do big techs actually make money mm. and should we be worried about it? Mm. And if yes, why? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. How do they make money? A lot of it, in terms of the product, the data is the product and their ability to have, you know, literally the whole world who are, um, you know, but users of social media in one way, shape or form, uh, pumping data into that, all sorts of ways and manners and times of day. I mean, on the, on the basis of, you know, this is a literally, you know, social activity, sharing information with friends, clicking on information, liking, disliking, but... Um, I mean, in a world where, you know, highly competitive markets are seeking consumers to buy their products, data and the way that it reveals what people like and dislike, which may actually be at odds with what they think they like and dislike, becomes incredibly powerful. I mean, it's, a, it's a, just you know, effectively boiling it down to a, just an incredibly hyper form of advertising. So it allows companies like Google and Facebook to on-sell data to companies to allow them to micro-target their products in far more effective ways. I mean, if you think, you know, how advertising worked up until, you know, even 10 years ago, it was incredibly hit and miss. You know, there were billboards and ads on newspapers and no one was really quite sure 
one whether people read them and what their impacts are, but the the interaction and the dynamics associated with users on social media, you know, just reveals an incredible amount of information. So that becomes incredibly valuable. So, you know, why Google and Facebook are now companies worth, you know, hundreds of billions, if not, you know, over a trillion dollars. It's because they have this capacity to go into the private realm of consumers and understand even better than they do what it is they want and they don't want. And that's just an incredibly powerful, pivotal position to have in a world which is basically organised around market economics. So, you know, there is a huge power thing there and I I think people are becoming more sensitive to it. But I I think to think through the implications of it, uh, you know, we have this view that tech provides all sorts of conveniences and, you know, individual power um, in our ability to navigate the complexities of the 21st century. But the meta picture, I think, is, is quite disturbing. I, 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 I think that you can focus on the data and you can focus on the ads, and obviously they're interrelated. Um, in my research, I look more at, at ads and the way in which we're, we're advertised to. And it's very interesting, and I, and I suppose this is a link to your, your theme it's very interesting the way in which, as someone who's studied the history of ads and particularly the history of political ads, for a long time the way in which political ads worked were you'd basically have a corporation that comes along and says, we're this corporation and we want to advertise to you in this way and we care about this political issue and, and they lay it out and it's very long and it's basically an essay. It's not really an ad, but it's paid for, so it has that aspect of an ad. And then you had a point in about the 1950s where corporations started realising we want to lobby not just politicians but the people and the way in which we're going about it is failing. So they started changing the way in which they advertised to us. They went from these long essays to essentially using the techniques that they use for political campaigns and also the techniques that they use for products. And they started to get better and better and better at manipulating us using these, you know, some of the same fundamental psychological techniques that you'd get with products. And we've just seen that evolution ever since. And now that we're in the big data aspect, not only do we have incredibly creative advertisers, but we also have people with access to incredible amounts of, of, of psychometric data that tells them very precise things about what gets us to what makes us tick, as it were. And that will be used by political campaigns, but it is also used by corporations, obviously in product ads, but even in their own political ads. That's a very interesting development. And big tech is assisting in that because, of course, they profit hugely from that. I think um, what's been in the public realm is Mm. more of the problem of privacy that they're concerned about. But it's not just the way it impacts our privacy. What mm. does it mean for democracy then? Well, I think, you know, when you go back to first principles of democracy, and we were talking about this, Sheila, before that we started, um, the whole idea of um, democracy in many ways is different from other systems is, you know, in theory, and this is an ideal type, that democratic practice means that information, you know, more information is in the public arena that people can then access and then have more, you know, calibrated, deliberative discussions. Again, that's an ideal type. It's never really been like that. But 
um, on the principle, foundation principle, the more pe- more inputs you have into this political system, the more the richer you know the outputs in terms of policy and political outputs, the more likely you're able to cleanse away outliers because you know just it's like a bell curve, I suppose. You put more inputs into the system, you know, in theory they be, they're more you know moderate, and then you know the outliers tend to be marginalised. Um, I mean, I, and then you have the issue of privacy that at the end of the day, and it's what we're talking about before, you know, your political preference, even though you might discuss it openly, you have a, you know, a private ballot. And I, I think the problem with big tech from a foundational level is that it basically shatters, you know, those two basic principles that you have, you know, a deliberative exercise of, you know, policy and political discussion um, and again that's not always the case but uh, it's you have you know in theory an open arena of information that you can access and debate and pull together and come up with you know potentially collaborative outcomes and you know when you go to the ballot box you know once you've done all that you can then have a, a vote the problem about social media particularly the algorithmic nature of it is that as we discussed last time i mean the market driven nature of it means that for companies to minimize you know risk in terms of content it's easier to give people what they responded to either positively or particularly positively or negatively in the past because they know that works so i mean that's really where people's criticism of of particularly facebook comes into is that you're just giving people more and more of what they actually believe in in the first place which then creates a sense of an echo chamber which then creates a sense of fragmentation and and polarization and just drives people in this sort of collective hysteria of you know very very strongly held views and so the moderating nature of uh, debate, you know, which occurs in the open arena, that people can, you know, input lots of ideas, et cetera, et cetera, becomes diminished. And so, you know, from a quality of public and political debate, it becomes harder for people to join together and find commonality. And I think, you know, particularly in America, that's the case. And you're seeing it in Australia as well. Just from a privacy point of view, I mean, knowing how people, how you think and how your political preferences played out becomes very easy for people to detect through your behaviour online. So, for example, you don't need to express a political preference, but a party can target you based on your consumer preferences. So, theoretically, I'm not sure, I'm not saying the Greens do this, but you know, if you shop at Kathmandu and you buy a Volvo and you live in North Fitzroy, you may not think you're a Greens voter, but you might suddenly get this stuff that suggests that you should vote for the Greens. So, I mean, nothing wrong with that in itself, but, you know, getting back to George's point, I mean, that original idea of political communications being manipulative, yeah, it's always been the case and it's been highly emotive and, you know, just triggering, you know, various compressions of reality around three-word slogans. But this is much more foundational. I mean, this is actually creating a reality around your political preference, which is just impervious you know, to a whole range of checks and balances that you might have seen in the past. So, you know, you get to a point where your private political realm, you know, becomes a marketised product. And I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not saying that people realise this, but if you take it to its logical extreme, then people potentially, if they know that's going on, start to self-censor themselves and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. So I, I think I agree with George, continuation of past practice, but there's a disjuncture in what's been going on over the last 10 years, 
which I think it makes you know the foundational principles of democracy really really problematic and unless big tech becomes more accountable and in my view broken up to reduce its market power I don't see how this can be resolved I'm just wary of repetition um, because Marx I think hit on a lot of the the, the key points um, but what I, I, you know I think what what I'd want to add would be it's it's interesting looking at this area in terms of the scholarship because initially there was a lot of quite positive scholarship saying, look, uh, this is this will have democratising effect. It it actually means that people can say things publicly. They have a, they have fora, they have public fora that previously was only there for the very wealthy, and that's true. That's that's pretty true. I mean, you still have an imbalance, which is if you can pay for ads, you still reach more people. Mm. But there has been a tremendous democratizing effect. Mm. More more recent scholarship is is starting to starting to really be much more critical and say, and look at the fact that this is uh, that this is as Mark said, dividing us. Mm. And they're both right. That's what I find fascinating mm. about this. I mean. You know, as, as someone who, like gracious hosts, uh, like as with Mark, ha- has suffered through some of my lectures in the past, oh. and you may remember that I bang on about a lot about Plato mm-hmm. and the fact that Plato would talk about the same problems that we're now facing 2,500 years ago, and he'd say, look, and he made this point over and over and over again through Socrates. God, I sound like a wanker. <laughs> uh, but it's true. But it's interesting. It's true. Uh, through Socrates, he said, look, people aren't smart. People are divisive. That you get mob mentality. Mm. The more democracy you have, the more like a mob you get. And he made some very persuasive points on that. Mm. And social media is playing into the worst aspects of that, mm. which is fascinating. So you either say, I'm for democracy or I'm for, I don't know, some form of platonic tyranny, mm. you know, ruled <laughs> by philosopher kings. Mark and I both work with academics. Um, we are academics. The idea of philosopher kings, that if academic rule, they're horrifying to me. <laughs> I don't know about you. <laughs> um, but, 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 but fascinating problems. And I think that... that as with everything, there is always a balance between freedom that needs to be struck, which is, you know, this idea of pure democracy. Mm. I agree with Plato, it doesn't work. Mm. But I disagree with his prescription, which is is this fanciful idea of, well, we need a rule by experts. Well, how do you get that? Mm. Um, it almost ends up, almost exclusively ends up being a tyranny. The best example of it might be, say, Singapore. Uh, okay, you want to live in Singapore? Um, you, you sacrifice a huge amount of your freedom for that. And so what we have is this thing where we, we're, we're struggling to find where the freedom should be. Mm-hmm. And the solution that we keep coming to is, well, we need intelligent regulation. And this is a space which is almost completely unregulated. Mm-hmm. And, we're, and, the reg- and, and rather than regulating it through de- democratic mechanisms like government, mm-hmm. we're saying you go and regulate yourself, tech companies, mm-hmm. Of course, not realising or maybe perfectly realising but being cynical about it, um, that these tech companies have an incentive to actually keep things volatile. Mm. That's a big, big problem. And I don't, and, and to get normative for a moment, mm. I don't think that we should be letting that to the tech companies that have that incredible perverse incentive. 
uh, I think we should be asserting ourselves more in democracies. It's fascinating that we're not. Mm-hmm. And I think George hits a really, you know, really, really pertinent point. I mean, it's it's such a paradoxical issue where people feel empowered at an everyday level, but you know, again, you know, without you know being too glum about it, you you track through the conceptual nature of it, and you realise that it's you know really quite Orwellian. That you know the tools that were meant to um, free us have, in one sense, become, you know, the uh, the the instruments of, you know, our disfreedom. But uh, you know, presidential debate, at least it's on the radar screen. Elizabeth Warren was talking about breaking up big tech. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about this. But getting back to George's point, I mean, this, you know, the Plato aspect of you know recognizing that you know you can't rely on people to be moderate and you can't rely on deliberative discussion. So previously, I mean, he, his solution to that is have the mega gatekeeper, which is the you know the, the authoritarian ruler. But I think what's happening is that we had a system of political communication up until you know even ten years ago where gatekeepers, were, were, you know, I mean, we didn't necessarily agree with them, but it was the mass media, it was you know the editorial newsrooms, it was you know a formation of elite opinion, and that obviously in places didn't always work that well. But the disruption has been such with social media where the entry barriers to information and, and distribution of opinion is literally zero that the gatekeeping process has been fundamentally disrupted. So, you know, that balance between freedom and order and organisation just no longer exists. And as George says, we basically outsource this to the tech companies and said, okay, from a market perspective, a market governance perspective, let itself organise. And it's a non-starter because tech companies are interested in creating the data that in, and organise and feed it back to us in a way that just exacerbates the problem. So, and then compound that with the algorithmic nature of, you know, algorithmic governance, which is a black box. No one knows how this gets organised and ordered and it just changes. I mean, I was saying to someone about Instagram the other day that you have to work out in retrospect how they've changed the algorithm by just having, a, you know, getting on a chat group and stuff like, oh, I think they've done this and no one ever tells you anything about, and why would they? Because it's a market issue and it's highly confidential from that perspective. So, I mean, the gatekeeping process is simply just, it's in a state of flux, but getting back to George's point, it just means everything and anything goes and human society has never worked like that, Mm. except maybe in the French Commune in 1870. But, you know, I mean, getting back to George's point, we're still slightly obsessed with this idea that techno-utopia will reassert itself and it will all organise itself back into the, you know, the wonderful world that we thought it was going to present 20 years ago, which is nonsense. I think the, the conversation shifts us to the Cambridge Analytica scandal, mm. um, where it remains the largest data privacy breaches where it harvests um, 87 million Facebook profiles to create targeted um, political advertisements. Mm. And in responding this, actually, Mark Hagenberg wanted the government to regulate big techs even more. And a lot of, um, well, people from different political um, spectrums like Elizabeth Warren, but also Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions mm. also talk about mm. how the big techs need to be regulated. Mm-hmm. It seems from the public atmosphere is like, oh, everyone agrees that big tech regulations need to be there. But the question is, why is it not now? 
and in what way should they be regulated? Well, I guess the problem is is that, you know, on the one hand, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is positioning himself as the solution to the problem and calling on regulation. At the same time, he has basically joined Instagram and WhatsApp and Facebook together in a seamless bundle, which makes it incredibly difficult to pull it apart. So, I mean, that's one thing to consider. But secondly, how do you regulate something that is so highly complex, that's so market-driven, that is basically outside the purview, purview in terms of expertise and just access to how the thing works because the nature of algorithmic governance is so tightly held. It's a black box. Um, uh, look, I, mean, I think there's some corollaries with you know the 1890s and the railroads and all that craziness where you know there was unregulated activity. But the difference between regulating a rail line and regulating the boundless seamless complexity of a changing nature of digital information and gathering and, and, and collection is infinitely more difficult. <laughs> Look, I mean, the tech companies say, oh, look, if you, if you touch this, then, you know, the whole thing will fall over. I, I think you just go and do it and see what happens. I mean, break it up, make the algorithmic system far more accessible um, and just see what happens. I mean, I know that sounds really utopian, but um, in the absence of just doing piecemeal change and being f- and having the issue framed by the people who have most to lose through regulation is just not going to solve the problem. So, aggressive state intervention. I don't know how that works, but yeah, I don't know. There's a know. real danger, isn't there, though, of a tautology yeah. emerging, which yeah. is make it better. So there's a real danger of a tautology. Um, which is just this idea of, well, we want better regulation or, you know, whatever. Um, I, I, it's similar to the problems that I've encountered because I, I, I do a lot of work in regulating lobbying. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of similarities there in terms of it's really difficult area. And, and, and the, the way I sort of approached it, and, and I think it's a really good way of looking at it, is you start with the, 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 you start with the basics and we often lose sight of those things. So you say, what's the problem? What's causing the problem? And often that isn't done. So you, you cited three politicians, I think. You cited Warren, Sessions, and Trump. Now, of those three, I'll, I'll take Warren. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> because what you have, because Warren is someone who's, who's, who's dedicated much of her life to regulatory issues, mm-hmm. including some of the very similar issues that we're discussing today. Whereas, you know, if you, if you to, to sort of flip that on its head, you, you, if you look at what Trump is what Trump means when he says, I want to regulate big tech. What he's really saying is, I want for more of my people, the people I like, to have their voices heard. Uh, and, and that's potentially fair enough, but that's what he really wants. Trump's about himself. Mm-hmm. Good regulation says, we need to strike a balance that, that is fair, mm-hmm. right? So you go into some really deep philosophical problems in terms of free speech, but problems that we have been dealing with for at least at least as long as we've had democracies, we've been dealing with these problems. Mm-hmm. And there are solutions to these problems. So, for instance, the United States is held up as, a bas- as an area, that, as a country rather, that, ha- that is a bastion of free speech, true and not true, mm-hmm. but, but one of the leading countries. 
they for a long time have actually said that certain types of hate speech shouldn't occur. And the reason is, if you actually read the sort of the judgments, the sort of Supreme Court decisions that led to this to this sort of demarcation of what is and isn't legitimate speech. For me, if you read between the lines, it's saying, okay, does this speech add anything at all to our democracy or does it only have a deleterious effect? Mm-hmm. And, the, and as soon as you start to think in those terms, regulation becomes possible. For instance, the United States bans, it does, you know, there's this debate as to whether, the, whether hate speech is banned in the US. It does ban hate speech. It's just certain types of hate speech. You can't make the type of hate speech where, that hurts people as in literally physically hurts them. You can't do that. You can't compel, say, followers to kill someone. So that's banned. But the United States, and for a long time actually the US said, we're also going to ban speech that hurts people in terms of we recognise, and there were Supreme Court decisions that said, we recognise that if someone is, say, out the front of your house yelling at you, saying racist things to you, that that too is harmful. So you run into the philosophical issue of the harm principle there. And that's the question. And that's what we should be looking at in terms of the fundamentals of regulation. Where is the acceptable level of harm? And that shouldn't be left to tech because what tech is doing to, you know, to, to throw Trump a bone, and I'm no Trumpian, I'm no fan, but he's right in some senses, which is there is evidence that there is an overregulation of, of vitriol on the right and not perhaps enough on the left because tech is self-regulating. So again, you run into this problem of you need to be consistent. I think it's fair enough for tech companies to say, you can't unduly harass someone. And then the problem becomes what is undue? What is, you know, what, what is just fair political exchange and what is over the top? And I th- but, but I think it becomes actually, if we actually really think about it, I think it becomes really easy to, 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 to come up with some pretty consistent rules. You can say, well, you can't swear at people. You can say that it becomes harassment if someone says, I don't want to continue this discussion and you find ways to continue the discussion or you find ways to continue to harangue them. It no longer is a discussion, right? So there's all sorts of things that we can set out and we can make consistent rules, but we don't do that. We don't do that at, 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 at a, certainly at a, 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 a state regulatory level and we don't do that and, and tech companies do it inconsistently when they do it themselves. So that's just one area of regulation where there are things we can do, right? Another area would be we have a huge problem in terms of the bot problem, to give it a sort of short name, which is we're seeing how vulnerable democracy is yet again. And social media is making democracies really vulnerable. And again, you return to that big problem of free speech. You know, everything that Russia did in the 2016 election and that they're doing again in 2020 in the US, and that they do worldwide, in one sense, is just Russia engaging in free speech. I mean, isn't that weird? I mean, you know, in terms of, you know, so leaking Hillary Clinton's emails and things like that, it's a huge deal. Um, but but in, in a sense, it's revealing the truth, right? Mm-hmm. They were her emails. What's fascinating about that and why it's a problem and why you should be wary of governments interfering in in elections is because they have incredible power that isn't there otherwise. So if a government wants to, to push the scales, as it were, for one candidate over the other, they can have their the Julian Assanges of the world release all the data that they've gleaned on one candidate, what they call you know, oppo research, but not on the preferred candidate. So there was this overwhelming amount of information coming out 
that was true about Clinton from Russia, but not, you know, Trump was obviously information about him too, (laughs) but it was not coming from the Russians. So that's another area that you can regulate and you can say, well, we're going to try and find ways of reducing uh, foreign interference and they have laws that deal with that. In other words, what I'm getting at is you've asked a question that is huge, but there are answers if you start approaching every area of the regulation with this idea of what's the problem, what's causing the problem, what are the potential solutions? Your area is lobbying and political campaigns and ads. And Mm. I wanted to kind of get your sense of in the 21st century, if we were regulating big tech companies, what impact would that have on lobbying groups who use these big tech companies as a way of micro-targeting people um, that we kind of touched on before with the North Fitzroy kind of uh, example? So do you, are you able to elaborate on that area? Yeah, anything that, anything, well, um, the way in which companies lobby us, so sort of what, what might be called public lobbying or advocacy advertising, there's a few terms for it. The way they, they the way they lobby us would be significantly impaired if there was much tighter regulation on data. So if you had so this is another area of regulation. Um, if you were to severely restrict the data that can be collected on individuals and the way in which that data is shared, which is something that the EU has been doing, but if you say even restricted it more, then that would limit the way in which any political actors can can manipulate societies. And for that reason, I think it's a good thing. Because, you know, you again, to return to that question that I raised earlier, you either believe in democracy or not. You either say, okay, there's a lot of problems with democracy and, and, and you know, too much freedom, too much democracy becomes a bit like mob rule. Plato was right about yeah, that. Yeah. So we need temperament. We need, we, need, we need some policing. You need some regulation. And we and and I think that I think that it's fair to say that in, in this area we're underdoing it, and we're saying we're, and we're we're going too far down that mob rule path, and we need to really bring it right back. So so again, if we were serious about it, we would be saying the way in which data is collected, the amount of data is collected, and the ease with which it's shared can be restricted. Now again, uh, I I hate tautologies. I just you know I don't like that idea of well we should just be doing good things or we should restrict something more, you know, those kinds of statements. Well, how do you do that? Well, one way would be you say um, that it's no longer an automatic opt-in with data, that you actually need to make it so that people explicitly say, I agree to this particular point of my data being shared, right? So rather than, so the way in which companies get around that is they have these insanely long EULAs, as it were, the end user license agreements. No one reads those. <laughs> no one reads them. No, no one does. No, not even not even constitutional scholars read them. No one reads them. Isn't that a problem? So, so, so there's an interesting thing there, which is in Australian contract law, we say you, it doesn't matter what it says if it's an unfair contract term. But so that's great. But that doesn't stop companies from using it as a cudgel. I mean, you know, you may not have million dollar lawyers at your disposal to challenge a contract. That's one thing. The other thing is. They use it to sneak in the data clauses. So, so how do you fix that? Very simply, you can create a law that says you can't hide the data clauses in contracts. It has to be at the forefront. So, and it says, this is what we will do with your data explicitly and people have to actually opt in. And if you took that even further, you could say, 
Not only do you have to have those opt-in clauses for some types of data sharing, but there's other types of data sharing that we just won't allow. So we're not going to allow, for instance, and I don't think we should allow, the mass collection of data. So there are now organizations that have the data from, uh, you know, loyalty scheme cards across five different stores, the data from our credit card purchases, the data from us. I mean, you know, there's a real danger with, I don't want to sound paranoid here, but there's a danger with the, um, the federal um, health care system. Yeah, my health record. Yeah, my health record. I, I, you know, I just, I just think that that's a nightmare waiting, waiting to happen. And, and, and it will definitely get leaked at some point. If it hasn't already, I think it has. And people will get their hands on it. And here's the thing. It's illegal for them to use it, right? Companies break the law all the time, and it's only illegal when they get caught and they're prosecuted. So we just have these companies, and they're saying, we're going to collect all this data, so ban it. You, you, you say you can't operate those companies anymore, and you make the consequences for operating really significant, and you actively police it. That would be one area where we could reduce this problem of, of what you might call a de- democratic deficit. When talking about regulations and what to regulate, mm. um, there's this guy called Michael Boskin. Mm-hmm. So he's an economic scholar at Stanford. Mm. He points out that big tech has um, major policy issues, including privacy, mm. market, pro- market power, mm. free speech, censorship, and then he adds national security and law enforcement. It's got the whole mm. kitten caboodle. Yeah. But then he states that... And I quote, having benignly neglected these companies for years, democratic governments are now producing a dizzying array of policies yep. to regulate them. Yep. The risk is that the flurry of policymaking will overcorrect and yep. do more harm than good, yep. not least by unintentionally stifling innovation competition. Well, it's actually a very good point because, mm. you know, there is now a public, increasing public appetite. For, for regulation, and this is what tends to happen: that governments tend to think the thing will self-organise, and we saw this, you know, through privatisation programs throughout the West in the '90s and early 2000s. And the thing goes pear-shaped, and then they mm. go crazy with regulation, you know, to regain, you know, lost political and policy ground and credibility. So there is a real danger with that. But to be honest, I'd rather see over-regulation than under-regulation with Hmm. this. Um, Unintended consequences occurred as a result of the system, you know, emerging ecosystem of of the internet and social media being left to organise itself and huge uh, unintended consequences. I don't think whatever unintended consequences that could arise from over-regulation could possibly rival ones that happened without it. Um, so yeah, I, I guess um, it's a really good point, um, but it, you know, I, I think ultimately what it speaks to, and this is not necessarily what governments are good at doing, is taking sort of a strategic approach and trying to anticipate issues before they occur. And it becomes even more complex because social media is so seamless, it's so blended mm. into everyone's life and the technology and the, well, for want of a better word, computer science behind it is so complex and ever-changing, so... Yeah. Yeah. Although I think lately the term innovation is being overly used. Well, actually, that was the one thing I was going to say. I think what the problem is, people have made this point, once you have three or four companies dominating the ecosystem of the internet, I I mean, Facebook is the clunkiest... I mean, I don't know what to describe because if if you're dreaming up a tech company that was ruling the world and you said, well, what would it look like? I mean, it looks like a 
website designed by someone like 20 years ago, which is mm. effectively what it is. I mean, I don't see – I mean, there is innovation, obviously, but in terms of user-friendliness, I mean, the problem is when you have market power to that degree, it stifles innovation. I mean, yeah. I, I, I suspect – and I don't know this, but if you're putting together a startup now – your main motivation would be to create a startup that would then be bought out by one of these companies. So the best way to do that is to literally mimic what they've already got going or something that's not too far off the track. Yeah. So I think this whole idea that the tech companies say, look, if you over-regulate, you stifle innovation. Well, how did this whole thing end up being run by three companies? I mean, that, from an ownership point of view, is profoundly problematic mm. in terms of encouraging new ideas, left field, peripheral vision stuff. And I'm not saying, you know, that the world hasn't changed exponentially over the last 10 or 15 years in terms of, you know, what tech is offering us, but potentially what it could offer us. Do we mm. seriously think that three companies or four companies have all the answers? I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's never worked that way anyway. So, so I think, you know, again, that's like drinking your own bathwater too yeah. much. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you believe that, you know, you are really good, no one's there to tell you otherwise, and that's probably what will happen. Uh, yeah. You, you brought up one of my great bugbears, and it's, I'm, I'm <laughs> containing the – I'm eyeing that, that delicious Shiraz that I brought in. Yeah. And <laughs> why, didn't I, why didn't I open it at the start? Um, so much there. I'm a, I'm a recovering economist, um, and it's called the dismal science for a reason. And I think it's one of the most unthinking of the sciences. I think that there's, there's a danger everywhere. We're not good at philosophy. So what we resort to is resort to shorthand. We resort to tropes. It is such a tired trope, this, oh, if we overregulate, we'll kill innovation. Sometimes that's true. Um, that's why it's a trope. That's why it's used. You know, there's, it's, it's aphoristic in, in the sense that Sometimes uh, regulation, bad regulation, can absolutely stifle innovation. Sometimes that's necessary. You know, sometimes, I mean, you know, that it would be true to say that if there was zero regulation, innovation would fly, it would just go through the roof. You know, people would be innovating left, right and centre, but there'd also be people dying from it. That's what used to happen. That's anarchy, right? So, shit point, whatever your name is, dude. Um, unless, unless you're, you know, it's just, it's just, it's, it's just so tired to say that. I just I find it boring, actually. Good regulation may stifle uh, innovation, but rarely does. So everything I just talked about before, okay, where's the stifling of innovation? What? Because people can't. It, what? <laughs> Sorry, if 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 we can't have predatory data collection, that means that Mark Zuckerberg's point two isn't going to make the next Facebook, or that Steve Jobs isn't going to order. Wozniak around and tell him to build the next, you know, Macintosh. What innovation is going to be stifled by that? Of course, we want good regulation. Of course, there's a danger of too much regulation. So we need to be smarter about it. But that's been my whole point. There's, there's equally a danger of saying, oh, well, if we regulate, it's going to cause these negatives. And then not doing anything about it. And let me tell you, 
history is filled of exam filled with examples of where we just took that approach. Oh, we better not mess with the markets, and then the markets find a way to really hit us. We want to move on to the regulations and policies that have already been established, especially in international context. So the EU has established the General Data Protect Protection Regulations, or GDPR, in 2018. What do you think that means for international big tech regulation? Uh, well, I think one thing is probably uh, there's two things worth pointing out. I think I mean the EU, you know, it gets a lot of bad publicity, but mm-hmm. it tends to be at the forefront of regulation, and particularly it's got a track record of reining in corporations, particularly who are sort of undertaking practices in the US. Uh, in a way which you know redresses the balance between you know, consumer and and mm. um, and corporation. So from that point of view, and it has the capacity for that to create you know huge issues for companies and make their practices globally consistent because the EU is such a big market. Mm. Um, so I think that's the first thing to say that this there's there's no one single solution. In the sense that um, you know you will simply regulate big tech and that's it, because as artificial intelligence AI becomes more powerful and more intrusive and, and more you know potentially, uh, if used the right way, beneficial, it's an ongoing process of regulation. But I think what you're seeing, I mean, you've got the ACCC in mm. Australia also starting to um, put boundaries around the behaviour of big tech that. It'll be this sort of emergent thing, I think, over you know, maybe the next five years, um, hopefully five years, not ten or any longer, where different jurisdictions are incrementally increasing the regulation on companies, which because of the global reach of these companies then have to can make their regulations consistent. So... You know, potentially the EU uh, makes a regulation, and because of that, that will then have to apply to other jurisdictions. Australia does mm. something, and then gradually it will like be turning up the temperature. But I, I you know, I, you see the tech giants positioning themselves in ways yeah. to keep the status quo. I mean, the money that they are now spending on lobbying, um, you know, the way that they co- well, I won't use that word, but the way that you know, they're getting a lot of talking heads out in the public arena, basically, you know, saying, oh, look, you know, we accept our responsibility and we're going to be doing this, this and this. And then, as I mentioned the other earlier, you know, you have Facebook basically bringing their, you know, Instagram, uh, WhatsApp and Facebook together, you know, potentially as a seamless company, which makes it incredibly difficult to break up. So I think you basically start from the assumption that regulation won't self-organize that you can't rely on these companies because their incentive structure as market-driven profit-driven shareholder dividend-driven companies are not going to understand the broader public implications of what they're doing Mm. and i think you know that's clear i mean the fact that you know facebook would say you know we are now regulating moderating content well why did it get to that situation in the first place and are you, do you seriously expect whatever number of people sitting in an office somewhere mm. can actually moderate the world's public information well it's a bit like that whole pottery barn thing that if you broke it then you own it so 
spending whatever they do on moderation and paying whatever fine is a fraction of the resources that potentially should be used by these companies. But anyway, I mean, I, I guess, you know, cutting a long story short, it's an evolving issue because the technology is evolving, the tactics of the big tech companies are evolving. And I think, you know, what you need ultimately in each company, sorry, each jurisdiction is a, is the, is a distinctive regulatory body that monitors and regulates big tech. I mean, we have the ACCC at the moment, which monitors everything. Mm. But which they also made a department specifically for that, I think. Yeah. Because of the. Yeah. No, current. true. Yeah. And, but it's such a big area, and the expertise that's required is, you know, is huge. Mm. And you know, if you had a perfect regulatory situation, you would be incentivising some of the best brains, you know, who who are talking publicly about their concerns about what's going on. You'd find some way of actually capturing that knowledge and putting it into a regulatory structure, and st- instead of reacting to the mm. technology, staying ahead of it and proactively regulating it before it becomes a problem. Because some of this stuff, I think, cannot be fixed. I mm. mean, the data that's being collected can't be uncollected. The damage to our civil society and political structures, you know, can't necessarily be unscrambled. In terms of the current Scott Morris administration and how they would probably go about regulating big tech or media in itself... How do you do you believe that in this age of social media gone wild and the interference of Russia in the American election um, and recent elections that Australia has had with the Chinese possible infiltration, do you believe that Australia has any pioneering effort in the area of regulation of big tech? Pioneering? Yeah. No. <laughs> Australia is, I mean, you know, partly for obvious reasons, we're a smaller country. But again, to return to the area where I'm more comfortable, which is, let's say, lobbying and anti-corruption regulation, um, having just come from ICAC hearings, in fact, I mean, I say just, you know, a week ago or so, um, what ICAC's doing right now, so New South Wales Independent um, Commission Against Corruption, what they're doing is that they're actually looking at other countries and they're saying, what can we learn from them? Great. Great. You know, look at analogous examples and say, what are they doing that's better than us? We should be doing that too. So I'm not so worried about whether we're at the cutting edge, as it were, because we're a smaller country. We don't have as many people who are thinking in that space. But uh, we, could, we should be looking at what the EU is doing and we sh- more, more closely. And we should be saying, where is it working? Where isn't it? And what can we do to improve it? So steal, steal good ideas. Um, I, I, and I wish we were doing that, but it's something that, we just tend not to do. Again, I find it sad, but we we're not we're not good philosophers, mm. and we're not good thinkers. Um, except for us in the room, yeah. of course, and all your <laughs> wonderful <laughs> listeners. But you, you know, as, as uh, generally speaking, we don't, we're not good at these things. And and I wish that, you know, I mean, people, for instance, harangued and still give Kevin Rudd a lot of crap for his um, summit that he held. Mm. If you uh, you may remember, and he brought. You know, lots of people. Now, I give him a bit of bit of bit of stick for that because you know he's he, he became a bit of a celeb fest mm-hmm. to some extent. But it also had it was also very interesting in the sense that he also brought a lot of the top experts in the country and said, "You go and you be in this space and you deal with these questions and come up with some questions. Even that's a great idea. That should happen more often. It's just that it should be more the experts and less less of. I mean, she's a great actress, but Kate Blanchett." Mm-hmm. 
you know, and and whoever else, or the other celebrities that were brought there, mm. so that so that Kevin Rudd could get photo ops with them or something yeah. stupid like that. We should be doing that more, and we should be, and we should be, not only be doing it, but we should then then be saying how can we translate into policy, rather than this piecemeal attitude that we have now, which is. So again, I cited ICAC. It's not just because they brought me in as an expert witness <laughs> that I'm giving them. It's it's because I I mean I really like what they're trying to do in the sense that they're saying we have this problem. Let's bring in experts and we'll 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 de- in the case of ICAC we'll depose them. <laughs> we'll make them swear an oath <laughs> that they're not going to lie. Yeah. And and then you know and then the commissioner and the and the and the various other lawyers will ask very pointed questions, great. And then ICAC will put together a policy document. That's fantastic. And then it will be for the New South Wales Parliament to act on it, which they probably won't. So there's a flaw. But the point there is, why are we waiting for regulators to to take it on themselves? Why aren't we making that a systematic thing? And we could, we should. And then and then and and so we we make. We make use of the knowledge in the country better than we do. Last one. Yeah, um, last one. Do you think it also influences the way people don't trust representative democracy? I think what I have observed is like in social media, people tend to represent their own perspectives on things and people tend to quote-unquote vote based on likes and dislikes or any other emojis they can react with. I mean, in many ways, it's kind of like a new way of political engagement, a form of political engagement. So what we, we George was referring to previously was this whole, you know, this idea of, you know, people sitting at the top of the tree being able to, well, using mixed analogies, but gatekeepers and they are, you know, from a conceptual point of view, they in political communication, communication generally see as fundamental in terms of people who invested with the authority and trusted to do so to basically open the gate on information, you know, which is seen as legitimate and salient and relevant and close it on stuff that's nonsense. Similarly for power, you know, people sitting within positions of power seen as gatekeepers, you know, they open the doors to, you know, what is seen as good public policy and they shut the nonsense out. So that, in theory, how it works. And I think the thing that's been really, really clear over the last 20 years is that the power of the gatekeeper generally has been disrupted because the entry barriers to all those scarce resources which gatekeepers relied on for their legitimacy and authority, such as information and Mm. wisdom and experience and all that sort of stuff. I mean, arguably, it's still really, really important. But... People now, theoretically, have access to any information in the world, can call on any authority on the world, can actually position themselves as an authority on anything. So it's profoundly disruptive and representing democracy as a system that basically is a gatekeeping system for political power in democracies where you delegate your voice to someone every three or four years through the election process and they act as your gatekeeper in terms of telling you what you th- they think you should know and deciding a policy which they think represents the broad public interest. That's been shattered. So mm-hmm. effectively, the democratic system as we know it, based around liberal representative ideals, where you delegate your voice to a person who goes to parliament and then talks about public policy and legislation and collective interest for four years at in this closed space called parliament, in one sense, doesn't make any sense anymore. So I think part of it is because 
that gatekeeping function has been seen to be like an emperor's new clothes. It just doesn't... I mean, what's the point of legitimating someone with information that everyone now has who has a voice that now everyone else has and can express at any time, whatever? But also, just from a structural point of view, the system is no longer aligned with the realities of how mm. information and power and communication works in the 21st century. So it keeps... You know, it's almost like a, a stranded system um, that's not to say you throw it out. I think what you need to do is basically retain, you know, the institutional core of the election and the parliament and the that represented, but you've got to supplement it with stuff that actually, you know, accords or aligns with what people think the 21st century is all about. And that's not simply delegating your voice every four years in a head-counting exercise. It needs to be a richer exchange that is not just framed around an election cycle and it's just not a submission process where everyone knows the outcome and you know the terms of reference yeah. are narrow banded and people are not mugs they know that that is what happens and they call it the political class or whatever um, the problem is when a system is under pressure it can do two things it can adapt or retreat and I think the political system is continually retreating, retreating mm. because it just doesn't quite understand what's going on yep. and the political class you know, they have a monopoly on political power and political representation. Why would you want to give that up? Mm. So, and I've been part, and so have other people been part of discussions with the political class about reforming the democratic system. Oh, what's the problem? Nothing to see here. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. But oh, we'll do something which is really just a trial, which is really on the periphery, and we won't actually mainstream this because if we do, then it's actually devolving our power. So, if you you know cut away all the talk and look at what it actually is, it's a class of power brokers and gatekeepers who are trying to maintain a 20th, 21st, 20th century system in a 21st century world. Mm. And people just keep ridiculing yeah. them. Well, between the big tech regulations lagging behind mm. and the democratic systems not being able to Adapt. keep up, mm. um, how do you think the... 2020 U.S. presidential elections. Should we be worried that the thing that happened in 2016 would happen again this year? I, I just, Especially I mean, with I, I Cambridge think, Analytica. I think the, the bad actors, inverted commas, as I was saying, will try it on because that's just the nature of it. Mm. But I think the scrutiny is now. I mean, mm. even political candidates who would benefit from that would have a problem with having that associated with them in the run-up to the election. And I think, as you mentioned earlier on, I mean, both sides of politics for their various reasons. I mean, the right believe that the ecosystem of the internet is run by the left and the left thinks it's run by someone else, are both calling for some sort of change. So I think, you know, that was... 2016 was uh, was the, you know, the true loss of innocence in terms of people's perception of what the internet is and how it impacts on the political discourse uh russia is already hard at work again democracies are like anything beautiful they're flawed and vulnerable and so we're gonna we're gonna learn after the fact just as we did in 2016 that there was some pretty heavy 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 meddling i mean right now there's a right now there's significant evidence that that the Russians are interfering on Sanders' behalf because they see Sanders as a, as a disruptor. And possibly they also think that Sanders is more likely to lose to Trump. But you wait till the election, they will, they will and it's looking like Biden will be the nominee now. Could be Sanders still. Uh, it'd be interesting either way. But if Biden is the nominee, 
you wait and see, there will be so much Russian interference. And part of the reason, I, I hate to say it, but part of the reason that there hasn't been a real crackdown on, on in this, again, in this case, Russian meddling in the US has been because, I mean, the person who's in the best position to crack down on it benefited from it. So, you know, where's his incentive? This is Donald Trump, obviously. Where's his incentive? to crack down on something that's helping him. And that's, that's again, that's such a common bloody problem. So we were talking about the regulation of big tech here. There are a lot of politicians that benefit from the status quo. Uh, there are, I can tell you, because I'm thinking of one of them in particular, a friend, actually. There are a lot of people who would hate it if they lost access to this data that they're getting absolutely hate it because they wouldn't be quite as ridiculously rich as they are. Mm-hmm. You know, wouldn't be getting as much money from from synthesizing and, and making good use of that data. Okay. But it would help our democracy. So, th- so again, you know, we have this huge problem, which is there are so many people with vested interests in the status quo. Uh, again, there's real danger of tautology here, but we've got to get rid of them. And I think the way to get rid of them is we've got to vote them out. <laughs> but that's a lot easier said than done. And, you know, again, just to go through that, such a frustrating thing. But if we were more engaged, we'd, we'd, be, we'd be voting differently, you know? Yeah. I, and I'm not, not, I'm not saying it means that we'd therefore be voting Liberal or Labor or Greens, because I'm sure there are a lot of Greens listeners who are thinking, yes, if we were just more engaged, Greens would sweep to power. Mm-hmm. I am not saying that. Yeah. If we were more engaged, the Liberal Party would be better and the Labor Party would be better and even the Greens would be better, right? And, it, and they, they'd all, because, because it, they'd, there'd still be these basic ideological divides, but we'd have less cretinous behaviour, which is that self-interested behaviour. All right. Well, I'll probably wrap up the episode there. So um, thank you so much, George, for coming in. I really, well, Sheila and I really, really appreciate it. Um, we love having experts in and giving their real fly opinions and everything. It's, it's good to have that raw emotion in the room yeah. as well. And we also thank Mark for also joining us for yeah. a minute. Thank you so much, um, George, once again. Really appreciate it. But anyway, um, just to end up that episode, thanks everyone so much for tuning in for a great discussion on social media. How ironic. Um, anyway, subscribe to us on Facebook, Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and we'll probably see you next week. Thank you so much. See ya.